0: I want to talk about error codes eventually in this episode, but I'm going to save that for after the coffee break. The The weird thing is that before the coffee break, there's a bunch of packages we're basically just going to breeze right on past. It is the GLib series of library of yeah of libraries we're in the L section these are libraries there's a whole bunch of glib libraries there's glib-1.2 which is a requirement it's just like two header files it's a requirement for gtk1 applications i think there might be some out there but that that's basically legacy support glib-networking-2.70.1 again glib networking for Because of the 2.7 series, tells you it's going to be used for the GTK 2 stuff probably, and then there's glib 2-2.70, and then glibc and glibc-i18n, and glib-oh I've lost my place already glib. Uh, c-profile, and mm. so all of these things, I mean, these are very vital information, uh, no, vital uh, libraries, I just don't have a whole lot of um, th- stuff to say about it. So I will say this: the C language is a lot simpler than we think. Maybe, maybe you actually think it's simple, but and I mean, honestly, I think it's simple as well. But I don't mean it's simple to to master. But it is. It's one of those simple things when you look at it. And I'm talking about just the C language. And if you look at at the keywords in the C language, you realize there's not a whole lot there. The reason the C the C programming can 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 do what it does is because of the the modular libraries that keep getting heaped on top of the C programming language. GLib C is the C language. It's not the only C language. I mean, there's there's only one C language, but this is Glibc is the, is a, um, an implementation of the C language. It's not the only implementation. There are others. Although, for the life of me, I can't think of what they are right now. I remember a long time ago there used to be a Borland C. B O R L A N D C, and and that was one that you would have to purchase and maintain a license for, and so on. And people did. People purchased it and used it. And I just on a on a whim, I went and I, I tried to find if that was still a thing, because I was like, I need to be able to cite some other C language. I know they're out there. I just can't think of, of what those would be. So there's there used to be Borland, but apparently Borland is now, um, I guess, maybe owned by an organization called microfocus.com. And then if you go there, it tells you that Borland is now part of an of a project called Open Text, which I don't know what that is. I'm, I'm guessing it's probably has very little to do with open. Maybe maybe a little to do with text. I don't know. I could be wrong. Maybe it's really really open. I don't know. So anyway, that that seems to be a maybe a little bit of a bust. But then it occurred to me that the other another C language that I could very easily cite is just libc without the g in front of it. Just libc. That's the the BSD implementation of of the C programming language and there's musl c or or however you say that musl c that's a, um, implementa- a implementation of the C standard library built on top of the linux System call API, including interfaces defined in the base language standard, standard POSIX, and widely agreed upon extensions. Uh, So yeah, there are various other implementations of, of what you need on your system to run code that was written in C and... Either that you're going to now compile, in that case you would probably need the header files because you're going to include them in your code, or that you want to run, in which case you would need the binary library uh, things that provide the extensions that the the compiled code expects to be present on the system. So that's glibc. The glibc, uh, packages here that we see glib glib to glib-networking and so on those are extensions of the c programming language this is where the complexity starts to get into come into the into the picture there's there's the c programming language and it's small and humble and it's just got the 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 things that you would need to to, to program really but of course as is the case in open source Once someone has programmed a thing, well, in theory, I mean, as long as it's basic enough a component to to things that people commonly do. In theory, nobody else has to code that thing anymore. That's the ideal. This this harkens to my my ongoing issue with programming. Ideally, we've all coded everything that we'll ever need. It's just really, really hard to stitch it all together or to adapt it in the little tiny way that we that, that I need it compared to how you were using it and so on. So anyway, once someone has programmed a function within C, nobody else theoretically has to program that function and you start getting these extension libraries with a bunch of other useful little programs so other people can call on functions that realistically they're probably going to need so for instance glib 2-2.70 if i do a most on that there's a bunch of header files oh this isn't yeah here they are Uh, there's a bunch of header files like a bunch of header files and they've got things like g... Where's gstandardio.h? Here it is in the glib directory of glib 2 in user uh, include. There's the gdate.h. G As you can expect, someone sat down with the pre- C programming language, and wrote some functions by which you could get the date, or you could translate the date from, uh, from this time zone to that time zone. I, I don't know for sure that that's what's in G dot there is a g date time dot so that might have have more to do with like translation or it might i don't know i mean it certainly would get you the time i'll bet um and then there's like uh g base sixty four i i bet it, without looking at it i'm betting that that's a c function that tran- that that codes and decodes base 64. there's g standard io.h there's g printf.h g regex.h lots of little header files here in in the include directory and i'm talking about a lot um to provide very very common functions that the c programming language on its own does not provide but that someone wrote and other people found useful enough that eventually people realized, yeah, we should probably just, we should, we should build, we should package this together. We'll call it an extension of, of the, of the library, of these C libraries, and we'll put them together and people can use them. And so the C programming language functionally or uh, effectively grew three sizes that day. It, it, it got... It got all of the. It got the networking functions. It got the standard I/O type type of functions. It got the um, what was the other one? Oh yeah, the I one uh, eight uh functions and so on. So people don't have to ever try to figure out what those things, how, how to do those things anymore. So here's um, here's something that I, I don't remember if I said on this uh, on on this show, but I got an email from Dan, uh, someone named Dan, and I don't know which. I don't know if this is a Dan that I know or or just a a new Dan to me. Uh, But I got this email uh, ages ago now. Um, I think in October of 2022, or is that August of 2022? I can't remember if my mail program is doing the date day month year or year uh, or month day year. Anyway, um, at some point he emailed me and he said, um, "Seems uh, hold on." He says, "Responding to your." I18n comment in GNU World Order 472. This is an abbreviation for internationalization, which is I plus 18 letters plus N. So that's why the I18 underscore letters, or rather I18n, that's what that stands for. Internationalization, I plus 18 letters plus N. And you can also have things like M17n or L10n or L-12-Y-N-A-1-6-Z. So um, that was a fascinating realization. So if you go to Wikipedia, of course, you can find information about this, but the Wikipedia link specifically is wikipedia.org slash wiki slash internationalization underscore and underscore localization. You know what someone should invent is a simpler word for underscore. That's what we need. Underscore. That's three syllables for a character that really is just a stand-in for the first for space. We need a better word for underscore someone. Okay. So uh, oh and glib mm, I think is the uh, C plus plus yeah, C plus plus bindings for Glib. That's a pretty common thing. I don't know what the MM stands for, Dan. If you want to let me know, um, not really. Dan does not have to let me know. But if someone named Dan does know what MM stands for, then I guess that person could tell me. But anyway, GLIB MM uh is the C++ bindings for GLib. It's pretty common to 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 do versions of libraries and then append the name with mm for some reason, uh which uh which indicates that this is the C++ version of the thing. Okay, so those are all the GLibs and I know I said at the start that we were going to fly right past them, but in a way I have, we've flown right past them. I mean, it's it's taken several minutes, but we have flown right by them without detailed information on any of them. So the next one, I'm, I'm probably going to fly by pretty quickly here, maybe, as well, is gmime. And gmime is a system for parsing parts of, of mail, of, of email, really. Um, now, it gets used, I believe, elsewhere. Could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure it gets used elsewhere, uh, specifically the desktop but originally Gmime was was designed for email and and in fact mime stands for multipurpose that's all one word i guess I, I don't know that it is i guess it is multipurpose multipurpose internet mail that's email internet mail extension and so the idea was that when you get email in you, you generally i mean an email a lot of people don't sort of realize what email actually looks like, but email is very frequently just, it's a big stream of text. I mean, that's what an email is. And yeah, you may you may have um, attached something to your email, but that attachment comes in the form of a stream of text. Like, you didn't post, I mean, it's weird, because I mean, all data... On a computer is basically a stream of text right i mean that's what data is really i mean you you have to construct it back into something else but but in this case you know you'll you'll find that your email is just a stream of text with images generally translate or whatever you attach generally translated to base64 and then decoded back with something like g base64.h, I guess, um, but in order to sort of figure out, well, where's the headers, and where's the body of the email, and where, is there an attachment, and if so, where does the attachment begin and end, all of that sort of stuff, you, you need a, a library to be able to do that, and that is the gmime library, or, or that is one such library that 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 performs that task. There are likely others. I would imagine if I looked hard enough, I could probably find the KDE version of that. I don't know for sure, but Gmime is a library to parse multi-purpose Internet mail extension data and and then ideally deliver it to a client that that makes sense of what Gmime has now parsed. So in, in generally, your mail application would be the thing. To receive your internet mail, and so when it shows up in your mail client, the reason that you have a to field and a from field and a reply to field and all these other fields is because you're, you're in the background. Gmime was used to parse the data that came into your mailbox. All right. Next after Gmime is Gmm. This is a again mm. So C++. This is indeed a C++. Um, Matrix template library. This is part of a larger project called getfem.org. Well, it's called getfem. G E T and then F E M. Getfem. I don't know what the F E M stands for. It's all capitals, so I'm assuming it's an abbreviation for something. I don't know what that something is for. It's probably for your experimental matrix. I don't. I don't know. I'm making things up. G M um, M is part of that that larger project so get Fen you can you can download you can install you can run through the tutorials on their website it's a bunch of uh, t- 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 to me, it's super advanced m- matrices, like m- math done on matrices, literally in more than two D and three D space. Like it's it's really super advanced from from my perspective. Of course, I'm someone who didn't even get through. Like I think I think I, I got through second year algebra, and that was it. <laughs> Everything above that, trig, calculus, didn't even bother. Uh, GMM plus plus or GMM rather. Well, they call it GMM plus plus, but GMM. The package in slackware it includes the matrix and the vector uh functions from from this this larger package of getfem i don't know what else getfem does include but on the getfem website they they have downloads both for gmm itself and getfem so I, i'm assuming there's some some differentiator. So if you go to getfem.org if you're into this sort of thing, they've got lots of tutorials with with really cool looking graphics of, of the of the solutions, of the of the output. So it, it is a really, really nice library if you know what to do with it. Me, I don't know what to do with it. Next up is GMP. That's the GNU Multiple Precision arithmetic library. As you can imagine, after what I just said, uh, I also don't know what to do with this. This is um, algebraic functions within a library, a C library. So, I mean, this kind of thing is obviously really important because cpus in you know at their most basic they they really aren't that they don't do fancy math very well they they do really basic math uh, they add and they subtract and i mean they sure they multiply they don't really divide i mean they do divide but also not really like it's division is it, it takes a lot of I mean you get into floating point stuff you get' a, you get really complex once you start doing division so uh, you know your CPU I mean n- not even all arm chips don't have division assembly uh, instructions not n- not all arm chips rather have division assembly uh, instructions division assembly instructions at all. Like, some of them just don't do that. I mean, they end up doing it through some mathematical sort of trickery, essentially by multiplying by a very, very, very high version of uh, of a number, and then by s- shifting things around and sort of putting them into two different registries, it registers so that you can get the answer that you need. But it's, it's weird. Like ARM Cortex, not all of them have division, believe it or not. Whereas, um, you know, typically like the the x86 things, I, I, I'm I assuming, I didn't check, uh, they have division operators that you can use but that's it like that's sort of natively that's what that's the the basic math operators you have if you want to start doing fancier things then you need you you have to you have to sort of break all of the fancier functions down into their basic components, which you can do. I mean, that's that's what equations are. I mean, when you write a fraction, you're implying division, for instance. When you're doing something more complex, you're implying other functions. So all those little fancy math symbols, I mean, those are functions. Those are indicators of some subroutine that you have to run somewhere. So you could do that, but with these kinds of libraries, whether it's GMM or, what was the other one, GMP, either way you're looking at you're looking at code that someone else has written in order for you to not have to write it yourself next up is gnome keyring gnome keyring is a encrypted little or it's not encrypted itself it is a um a demon that runs as gnome-keyring-demon and it monitors or or it it I guess you know it's a demon, so it's running in the background, listening for calls to encrypted information. So that includes your user your your security credentials, user security credentials like your username, your and the password that's associated with it, that sort of thing. That's the GNOME key ring. That's what it does. I don't know what it's used for. I assume it's used for, for instance, Firefox. I could be wrong. I, I get a notification from Firefox when I... No, that's not from Firefox. I just realized what that's from. That's from password store, uh, the the pass command. So I yeah, I don't know what uses GNOME keyring on Slackware, but I mean, it's here, so something does. I just don't know off the top of my head what that is. It could be that it's required for some of the low lying, you know, just kind of the basics of some GNOME-related application, which, you know, because I'm thinking about it right now, I can't think of what that would be. I just can't think of what what comes on Slackware that's sort of like from the GNOME folks. But I, I know there are. I know there's stuff. I'm just not thinking of it right now myself. Kind of scrolling through. Well, here's... No, I, I installed that. Well, Glade, right? There was Glade. So who knows? Maybe Glade once the Gnome keyring. Like, it could be as simple as that. Okay, next up is Gnome Themes Extra. Gnome Themes Extra is a set of default icons used by many GTK applications. Now, a long time ago, but within, like, the time that I've been making this podcast. A long time ago, certainly on Slackware, you had to include a couple of extra special instructions somewhere for there to be, I think it was, icons in GTK1 applications? Or maybe it was GTK1 and 2, I forget. But um, yeah, like if you chose like KDE as your desktop or Fluxbox as your desktop, if I recall correctly, you might Open a Gnome-ish application and find that it had no icons. It just had little image not found, uh, a page, little you know empty page icons instead. So you had to include in there like uh, I think it was a reference to GTKRC or something like that, like .gtkrc, or maybe you had to make one. I forget. Quite possibly, if you selected XFCE as your desktop, that got set automatically, I I, I imagine, because it wasn't a problem on XFCE, but it would be a problem elsewhere. Um, it wasn't a problem on a lot of other distributions uh, anyway, because they they would account for that. But Slackware, not necessarily defaulting to a graphical environment, didn't have some of that stuff set in place, which was fine. You just needed to know to do it. Um, and of course, I, I had that in as a step in Slackware Media for a long time. So the GTA gtk icon set is included here because there are gtk applications so or the gnome theme extra so that 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 covers stuff for gnome-ish applications starting to think it's almost time for coffee here so let's keep going really quick with one more it's the gnu-efi development kit or or development files this uh is a set of libraries to help develop Efi related applications now efi is the extensible firmware interface or something like that i've I've forgotten what it stands for I always do that these 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 acronyms i I never remember what they actually stand for anyway efi i'm going to say it's probably the extensible firmware um, interface it's kind of a well it is it is a a little system that lives on um an embedded chip on a motherboard. And n- natively, the EFI might be a little environment. It's like a little, it's got its own little, I guess, kernel. I don't know if that's technically what they call it in the EFI world. But I mean, it's it's an interactive prompt. What happens in real life normally is that a vendor, someone making a, a motherboard, takes an EFI image, flashes it to the chip, and once they're happy with it, you know, they do all their testing, hopefully, to make sure that it, it makes the motherboard activate and and finds all of the things that it needs to find. I don't know how ex- extensive that is, and I guess it really depends on the manufacturer. I, in theory, you could say, okay, well, I want my EFI program to be aware of the networking uh, interface on my motherboard, and maybe you would want to even provide, like, an interface to help control Configure that networking interface or something um, or you could say well I want my EFI to be aware of how much RAM is in the motherboard that actually that would probably be essential so you could I mean EFI it's just it's a very tiny little essentially an operating system I mean it isn't but I mean it is and it's very similar in, in function to BIOS a lot of modern computers now when you go into the BIOS you're not actually going into the BIOS you're actually going into the EFI or as they say the UEFI I forget what the u stands for because why would I remember it I can't even remember what the EFI stands for but uh, UEFI EFI same same idea I believe this was all kind of started from Intel I believe if, if my memory serves I know for sure I read a bunch of documentation from intel about uefi at a at an old old job so efi in theory you could you could interact with efi what what happens in 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 practice is that the vendor of the motherboard the manufacturer of the motherboard gets the efi flashes it onto a chip and then and then closes it off like sort of freezes it in you know as a read-only thing um sometimes they, they they'll leave places where you can work Through EFI, well, yeah. So you you can go into your UEFI environment potentially if they've constructed one for you and set things like what disk should you should uh, should this computer start from? Should it start from the hard drive or from the NVMe drive or from the um, USB drive that I've got plugged into the back of the computer or the CD-ROM or whatever? So you've got that kind of thing again, very much like BIOS, but but that's just an interface right that that's the if if you have that then that's the the interface that somebody has constructed for you within EFI there is an EFI shell technically that you should be able to access in theory within an EFI system now i don't know about you but when I boot my computer and hit the snag key, whatever it is, I forget what 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 I I think F8 is, what it is on, on this particular computer. Uh, it's F2 on another computer. It's the delete key on my other, other computer. So whatever. You hit that key and you get into your BIOS, except it's not BIOS, it's UEFI. Mine doesn't give me an option to uh, open a EFI shell. I don't know about you. Uh, you can download technically an EFI, a EFI shell, from a, a place called Tiano, the the Tiano Core project, I think, is is what it's what it used to be called Tiano Core, or is it just Core Boot now? I'm not sure, but uh, Tiano Core was the is the EFI um, implementation that is completely open source. It's the open source implementation of the Unified extensible firmware interface so i didn't forget what efi stood for i was correct extensible firmware interface and then the u is is unified so tiano core.org you can go there in theory down well no you can go there uh in theory you could download this this implementation of efi and potentially use it um but it it can be tricky i mean it really is there's efi is very very low level and and you might be able to um virtualize uh, interactions with it but if you want to get it onto a motherboard i mean you would need a chip that has that, that lets you write to it, which is not usually how motherboards ship. And that's kind of my point to all of this. Generally speaking, motherboards lock down everything about the EFI because they don't want you, but they also don't want malware to go in and change EFI so it usually gets locked down pretty tight because the assumption is that in terms of a motherboard you're buying a toaster it's, it's an appliance you're going to do exactly one thing with this motherboard you're going to put it into a computer you know put a bunch of cables and ram chips into it and then you're going to that's and then that's going to drive your computer like now you that's the computer but what you really need is a place to put your cpu and the ram you know that's like kind of what you really need uh, and and you know usb ports and a screen port and things like that. So that's what a motherboard is supposed to do. The EFI, really the purpose of that EFI is to just make sure to manage the motherboard, make sure that that motherboard can can receive has gotten power on and has been able to take an assessment of everything attached and soldered on. And plugged in to that motherboard. Well, not everything, but everything that EFI cares about. So that's that's EFI. GNU EFI, again, this is just a toolchain set. This is not the EFI itself. It's an EFI development kit, uh, so that if you were to attempt to program something that would interact with EFI, you could do that with with your GNU toolchain. So it's got things like EFI.h, EFI underscore PXE.H. So if you're if you need the the ability to interact with a Pixie booter or maybe you're writing a Pixie booter, then you've got that available. Uh, EFI net, EFI part, probably partition, EFI um, I don't know a bunch of things. So and it's header files. It's all header files, um, pretty much. Yeah, it's it's header file. Well, there, there's a library. There's an object file down there. Uh, but mostly it's 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 a bunch of header files to help you develop for programs that would interact with EFI. That's it. That's GNU EFI. Uh, And then next up is like g-object introspection and stuff like that. But before we get into that, I want to go get a cup of coffee. And I want you to go get a cup of coffee. And then when we get back, I want to talk about errors. Because the uh, glib stuff, glib-error, made me think about errors. And other things in real life made me think about errors. So I want to talk about errors. Let's go get coffee first. obfuscate or sanitize errors in your code or on your server. Generally, that tends to be a bad idea, which itself isn't entirely intuitive. I mean, you might think it's better for a user if you dress up an error to look nice, or you might think it's better for security if you don't provide an error at all. How can a user hope to understand an error If you don't make it look nice? Or what if an attacker uses an error to reverse engineer how your system works? There are apparently some really good arguments for hiding or disguising errors, but there are even more good reasons to be honest about errors. And because this is the internet, I've made this into a list of five points. One, accurate errors mean accurate bug reports. So recently I was referred to a git repository on, of course, a GitHub, not an open source platform, but popular for whatever reason among open source programmers. Someone gave me a link to a repo within GitHub. When I navigated to the URL, I got a page announcing that I'd encountered a 404. In the HTTP protocol you may or may not know, error 404 means page not found. The page requested does not exist. So I started investigating the problem under the assumption that I'd been maybe given the wrong URL. So I analyzed the different components of the URL, you know, maybe the maybe the site name was wrong or maybe the 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 well the site name was correct but cuz the 404 page was branded by GitHub, but maybe the repo name had been misspelled or something or um Maybe it was my browser. Maybe I. Maybe the problem was on my end. Maybe something was wrong. Uh, Maybe I needed to try a different brand of the browser, Chromium instead of uh, Firefox, whatever. Everything seemed correct, but I was still getting the 404 no matter what I did. In the end, of course, it turned out that GitHub was lying. The page did exist. I just didn't have access to it. So all I needed to do all along was request for the repo owner to add me to that project. Great. Problem solved. Except that wasn't the problem. The problem is, that's not a 404. If anything, it's maybe a 403 forbidden error. But actually, it wasn't an HTTP error at all. In fact, it wasn't an error. It was the expected and correct result when someone without permission in the site's little database, attempts to view a specific record. I can only assume that the site programmers saw a fake 404 page as an easy sort of shorthand method to neither confirm or deny that the page exists. Sort of a plausible deniability as security. But there, you know, there are, that's a useful idea. There are better ways to express that, like you could say if this repo exists then you do not have permission to view it otherwise no such repo exists you see that like in in sites where you are um, where you claim to have forgotten your password so you ask for a a password reminder. Generally, the site asks you first who you claim to be. And then further, a good site will say, if your email exists in our system, then we have sent a password reminder to it. It's a brilliant way of phrasing that because that that way they're not confirming that that email address exists within their database but if it does then hey you've got a password reminder there if you're just fishing for 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 valid email addresses in within our system then you now have the same 50-50 chance that it exists or does not exist as you did before. The the more you try to interpret an error for a user, the more likely it is for you to get inaccurate bug reports. That's the kind of thing you get. If you tell them that it's a 404 when it's not a 404, you're going to get people telling you that your site is incorrectly rendering a 404 page or that they can't get to this repo because there's a 404. But that's not why they can't get to the repo. They can't get to the repo because the repo is there. They just don't have permission to see it. If you want accurate bug reports, tell people what's actually wrong. Two, errors promote self-support. Errors provided in simple and descriptive language means that anyone competent on a system can fix the error. An obvious and non-descriptive error like login failure is like, placing a brick wall in front of a user, a descriptive error like private key file not found or unable to reach the Kerberos server, those tell a user at least the users who understand how a process is supposed to work, where the failure has occurred. The user's investigation can start with the stated problem and possibly result in the user resolving the issue without bothering you for support. Everyone wins in that scenario. The user gets the thing figured out quickly, and you never have to know they ever encountered a problem. When you obfuscate or hide an error, though, you're inviting everyone to call you for help whenever something goes wrong. That's a common micromanager technique, and it drives people into the ground. It's a horrible way to live. Some people do it. Doesn't mean it's a good idea. Do not be that person. If you don't provide contact details for your support, then you're planting the seeds of helplessness and resentment in your user base. Nobody wins in this scenario. You are overworked because everyone's calling you for help, or You hide both the error and your identity so no one can call you for help and now they all hate you, whoever you may be. Three, errors promote hardened systems. I get nervous about revealing too much information about my system to anyone who kicks my server often enough to get an error. It's a valid and successful attack technique to discover errors and then use them for context on how a system is configured. Like if you go to a a website and intentionally go to uh, a non existent page, and you get an error saying uh, this is an Apache server. And we can't find the file. Well, now you know it's an Apache server, not an nginx one. So now you know what to you you, you know what web server this server is uh, is is running. You've learned something. Well, that sounds horrible, but um, in truth, it's an equally valid and successful attack technique to build a profile of a system from the expected responses you get back from it. Software has sort of a a fingerprint, right? I mean, software responds in certain ways. And if you are looking for telltale signs of of what something is, is running behind the scenes, then often you can find it. You can build that profile by the way it does work. You don't have to wait for the way that it doesn't work if an attacker is profiling your system they learn as much about it from what you want your system to do errors might provide an attacker a lead toward like a known exploit but so do everyday responses and no attacker is going to sit around waiting for an error message before attempting to exploit a vulnerability that's not how attackers work an attacker runs all known exploits against your system using a script or an automated framework and just hopes that one works they they don't they don't sit around waiting for permission to try to exploit something based on an error it's too much work honestly to sit around waiting for errors it's a lot easier to just trigger a job, go get a cup of coffee, come back, see what happened. Knowing this, an admin's job is to ensure that that system is protected against common attack techniques. Detect attacks as they happen, dynamically block an IP that's the source of unusual activity, ensure that your software is up to date, and so on. Those are the appropriate defenses against attacks, and none of them involve obfuscating error messages. Four, errors for errors. Errors happen because something's gone wrong by definition. When you try to obfuscate an error message, you're tacking on a new subsystem that is itself then subject to error. So what happens when your error interception subsystem has an error? It's not like, you know, errors all the way down. So at some point, a real error is going to happen and it's going to get through. And then all you have is an error about an error and not the error itself. Not only do your users have no idea what's gone wrong, but neither do you. That's not a great place to be. Five, open collaboration. Bugs can feel embarrassing if you're not numb to them yet. And you do develop numbness to them eventually. You might feel like an error exposes you as a bad programmer or a, a poor sysadmin. The reality is though that nobody else in the world sees it that way. I mean nobody that matters and I, I don't I I honestly I don't know that anybody sees it that way. Everybody knows that technology is imperfect. Errors happen. They happen in vital system software, in, in nationwide infrastructure they happen on space probes, they happen on uh, AAA video games. I mean, heck, AAA video games expect, the, the, the players, I think, honestly expect errors. Like, it's just part of the package. They pay for the errors. When you share errors with the world, there's a high chance that somebody out there in the world will help fix it if you let them. I mean, I wouldn't bank on it, because when you expect it, of course it never happens, but it does happen. People get very motivated when they get annoyed at something, and it often happens, with or without your involvement. There are unofficial fixes and workarounds and mods and hacks for all manner of problems out there. Your users are going to find and use those techniques, whether or not you admit the error even exists. So the choice is yours. You can help your users succeed and accept that they can in turn help you succeed, or you can ignore the problem and force your users to waste their time and energy hunting for an unofficial workaround. One of those techniques breeds collaboration and mutual support. The other breeds frustration, anger, and resentment. Errors are good. It's true that not everyone in the world appreciates a stack trace or a core dump when an error occurs. Not all errors have to be Quite that ugly, though. You can make them look nice. You can probably prepend or upend a helpful message telling users what to try next after an error has been encountered. Like the KDE desktop, it's got that little really annoying KDE crash. What is Doctor Konky crash handler? It pops up lately whenever I check my mail in Kmail. Unfortunately, not really sure what's going on there, but it pops up and it tells me what I can do next. Of course, there's another problem there, and that is that after I step through the the thing it 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 figures out that i don't have debugging flags in my kmail and therefore the bug report would be useless but that's another problem the point is you can which by the way remember what i said errors about errors so anyway you can you can make them look nice you can you can be helpful to people while still providing the honest error it's it's vital to be friendly to users who don't understand how and why errors happen like you don't want to just dump a bunch of meaningless text at people and pretend like they're going to be able to do something useful with it. But it is equally vital to understand that some errors are so bad that they're gonna hop over your intended interception or your interception is itself going to be flawed in some way, like prompting a user to step through several steps to create a bug report and then to realize that there were no debug flags enabled. So providing accurate errors is important to a subset of users and it can greatly benefit both you as the app, uh, as the developer or the sysadmin as well as the people using your application or your service. So next time you think about deactivating an error output or not including a verbose mode in an application, think twice. Because there are, as I've just demonstrated, at least five good reasons why those errors are hugely beneficial to you and your users. And I think that's about it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I will talk to you next week. into the unknown, from which we may never return.